coming from last week and the story that we got to participate in as a family, I feel like we have a really good place to move forward in now that we know our history. And we can say it's ours because it came from our spiritual parents. It's what they walked through. It's not just their story and what the brewers dealt with, but it's our story because that's what we get to live from. That's what we get to launch from. And that's his story because that's what he put in, that's what played out in our lives to bring us from a place of Egypt, just like we have forefathers that can look back over history and explain where their fathers came from and the generations before them. And now we have a history that we can look back over, that we can see that there's a family that was willing to walk the narrow of narrows to bring us to where we are right now. And so, Tonight, we get the opportunity to launch from that place. And as a family, it's our honor to sit and learn all that they have to release. I was sharing today on Kingdom Heirs that I just, I'm thankful every time that I hear a story or what they've walked through because it reminds me of what my family gets to walk in. Like the freedom my family now gets to walk in is because there was a family that was willing to pay the price, was willing to walk a hard life for on our behalf for generations to come, not just for today, not just so we could be satisfied with, well, we're outside of that story and we're in a new place, but for generations to come. And so for tonight, I just want us to posture ourselves remembering what was done on our behalf because we have forefathers in our family that we could just sit with now. Remember when I I talked about if you could sit with someone who's been through war and you could hear their story, that you would walk away different. You would walk away changed because you heard what someone went and did for you on your behalf, what they did before, uh, before you even knew that it needed to be done for you. And that's what we have in this family and that's what gets to be multiplied through us. Like, taught to us so we can turn and multiply that in generations to come. So tonight, if you can get your notebooks ready, get your Bible out, get prepared, we're going to launch from that place. Mom, are you coming up first? Okay, we're getting tag teamed tonight. Did you grab your trading floor cash? You're going to want to give into this. Remember, mark your notebook where you've traded in so you can see when that has come to fruition. And thank you guys. We honor you for going before us, for going ahead of our family and making way. I've described before that there has been things that they've done in their marriage that it felt like they were like digging away with things like with a spoon. Just marriage. Let's just take marriage. Like that's not kids. That's not religion. That's not family. That's not finances. That's just marriage that they dug with a spoon, dug at things for years. What? Oh, they're still, like, they're still spooning. I was going to say they're still spooning. And then, so then we get to come along and we get to use, like, I don't know, is it a backhoe? Like, a, or maybe a shovel. We get to use a shovel because they made way with a, a spoon. And then the generation after us comes through and they make way with that backhoe. And it's like, it just gets easier and easier because there was a family willing to stand up and say, I'm going to take the hard road so that the legacy that I leave and the generations that come after me can have it a little bit easier than I had it. Thank you. But before we get started tonight, um, we first wanted to just thank everybody 
for last week um, because we, we were thinking about it and we've never corporately in that type of setting, we've never uh, told our story or really had anybody want like want to hear about it. Um, so, <laughs> Not that that means you guys wanted to hear it. <laughs> well, but... maybe you didn't. But, <laughs> uh, but it was, it, we, we very much appreciate it. And uh, I think I mentioned it last week that I was getting revelations about our story as we were sitting there. So um, it was really awesome. And uh, <clears throat> so we honor you guys for that. Thank you. Um, one of the things I wanted to express tonight going into to continuing to talk about the things that we were talking about the week prior to last week is it's really cool that you guys have declared that our story is your story, right? And when you talk about like, uh, like spiritual lineage or heritage or legacy, that that's a real thing. It's not just a nice sounding thing to say. That, oh, our, their story is our story, right? Like, sounds nice, but that's for real. And when you, when you think about the things that Yahweh told us to do and the things we were obedient to, it was because he was appointing, he was appointing us for certain things, right? And it started with him saying, do this, do that, don't do this, whatever. And it required our obedience to fulfill those appointments, Right? Things that are still being fulfilled now. And a lot of them were unpopular. Uh, there wasn't a majority of people that were around us that were fans of it. And so in a way, when we were obedient, we were disappointing the majority of people around us, whether it was family, parents, friends, whatever. Everything that we decided to do, I can pretty much say was all characterized by not being the popular decision. And it's interesting because what we're walking out now is, is, is clearly not the most popular decision. The majority of people, the masses aren't going to high five us and say, good job, you're fighting the good fight, right? Because what we're doing is not popular by definition, right? And so it, it's, it's not surprising that Yahweh, part of his appointment that he has for us is bringing us to this place. Like I can look at it and say, this is characterized by the same things as all the previous decisions that Yahweh's had us make. Does that make sense? So in setting us apart, in appointing us, there's a huge disappointment on some level somewhere. Does that make sense? Like I'd rather disappoint people and be appointed by him. I'd rather be appointed by him and be disappointing to you know, 99% of people. And so we just wanted to point that out. And then mom had some, some, something she wanted to expand on that's really important about the, the, the revelation and the process that she went through about kingdom heirs. And Yahweh told her to lock herself in a room until, and it ended up being like, what, five days? And so she had something she wanted to expand about that before we get into tonight. I'm trying to I'm trying to connect why I wanted to share it though. He's like, mom wanted to share it and I'm looking at him, I'm like, I did? <laughs> well, let me start with something he just said because most of you amened. 
But the reality of walking out a revelation like that is not just an easy amen. Because you're going to wake up tomorrow and possibly disappoint someone. And you have to decide, am I here to serve that person? Or, let me say it easier, an easier way to say it, if I make a decision because I say I'm serving a person, or am I really making a decision because I'm serving myself? And when I choose to not disappoint in that situation, either way, they're gonna be disappointed and I'm probably gonna be disappointed. Because I'm not here for myself or for him, but I'm here for what Yahweh said. So it's so easy to hear that and be like, amen, we're gonna disappoint the nations. Okay, wait till you have to disappoint your kids. Right? I mean, one of the biggest things we've had to struggle through is man's tradition versus his tradition. And what are we going to say to the kids on December 25th? I understand most of us have gotten through that, but it might be something else. And so, but sometimes I just wonder, are we struggling with telling the kids about December 25th? Or are we struggling (laughs) telling ourselves about December 25th? Right? And so there's an aspect of us telling our story and amening the way that we walk causes disappointment, not recognizing that when you disappoint the world, you're, you're honoring him. But is that enough? Yeah, come on. Is saying I've honored Yahweh against all odds, is that enough? Meaning, what is it that tells me that I've walked in such a manner that's honoring him if everything around me is desecration. It gets confusing because if everything is falling apart, then you're immediately gonna be like, but I thought that I was honoring Yahweh, but everyone's disappointed. So it's so easy to then fall into, well, then it must not be Yahweh. And so our story is to encourage you that most likely if you're disappointing everyone around you, Probably heaven is celebrating <laughs> because it, it, it doesn't make sense to say, well, everything is just, oh, let me say it this way. Kingdom is not convenient and kingdom is not um, uh, mass produced happiness, which, is, which sounds crazy because you would think, well, the kingdom is because there is an internal joy when you're serving him. But at the end of the day, if it's not internal and you're basing external situations on your joy, then you're never going to know if you're serving him or if you're serving others. Because then you're basing it on external things versus what he said. And so then it makes it difficult to walk the narrow of narrows because it's the narrow of narrows. And it's so easy to slap a kingdom should be easy right remember his yoke is easy and his burden is light so it should be the easy road which means make everyone happy (laughs) no that is not what his yoke is his yoke is easy and his burden is light that is not what that means and so then it gets difficult to walk such a way because you're walking completely different than even what religion or your household has taught you that blessing looks like so i would assume that all of you guys heard our story saw blessings in it because you're hearing that story on the other side. But it did not mean that I felt blessed when I lost my second child, or I'm in despair, or our marriage is falling apart, or whatever it may be, or my parents aren't happy with something, or now I'm being cursed in the community. That does not sound like I am doing anything for the world. 
and it can be easily misconstrued, well, then it must mean I'm doing something wrong for Yahweh. But as you can tell, as the story is being unfolded, you can see what it is that Yahweh was doing in order to birth something. So what I think I wanted to share was a little bit more. I had specifically told Megan that I didn't know if we were done uh, with our story, but didn't want to necessarily take an, a whole night to continue because a lot of people had questions afterwards. And I recognize it's one night to tell almost 20 years. And um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there was just so many things that came up as we were telling the story that I'm like, I didn't even talk about that or I didn't even say about that or I didn't even talk about so anyway so there is definitely a lot more and I do appreciate the questions and we love being able to share but there was one thing corporately that I felt like um he wanted me to, to touch on and it had to do with kingdom air specifically so this part of the story as you guys know uh we basically inherit our eighth born now I I was involved in ministry I thought I had a partner in ministry, and then when those partners left, I essentially then had a full-on, like, the, the best way to explain it would be, um, I get pregnant, and I think that I've got a partner in that pregnancy. This baby's coming, whether I like it or not, and I now don't have a partner, and I have to birth this thing. So I had a choice, is basically what happened, and I don't know if I explained this. When he sent me into the... Um, into the office to sit for five days until I got my verdict. He basically said, you get in that room and you don't come out until, you, until this is settled. You need to figure this out. And ultimately what he was saying is, number one, you've got a choice. You're either gonna abort this thing, you've got an option, you can kill it, you can kill it, and then it'll all go away. Which would sound crazy for people who don't believe in abortion. But I'm talking about over your life, the word in you, yeah. How easy it is for the enemy to yeah. be like, get yeah. rid of what I've yeah. put in you yeah. because it's going to be really hard and yeah. it's yeah. really going to be shameful if yeah. you let that thing come out, especially if people find out how it got there. Because yeah. if all of a sudden you got a dream and it didn't come from your mama and it didn't come from your daddy yeah. on earth, but it came from heaven and it's crazy because if it's from heaven, it should probably be crazy because if it's not crazy, it's probably not from heaven, right? right? So then you're going to have this crazy idea and the world is going to, it's going to be shameful. So what's the first thing that's going to happen? Get rid of it. So I want to associate this to the beginning of my story when Christianity said, don't talk about it, flush it. We're not going to talk about your loss. Get rid of it. I want you to hear that multi multi-dimensional. Let me just say this. Instead of me just throwing out these like little clues and I think people are getting it multi, like Yvonne is so awesome. She'll be like, I should be getting it. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> I love it. I'm like, oh, because I'm thinking anyways. So multidimensional, if the word became flesh and then he said, you are the word. How easy is it for Christianity or mainstream world to say, get rid of it? Flush it. We'll move on to something different. Just let, just get rid of it. He is good. He's not after loss. He's not after a narrow road. He's not after, he's not after that. He did, he's, he, the finished work of the cross means stop suffering. Get rid of it. You don't have to birth anything. It's fine. It's all under the blood. Right? So there's no accountability. There's no dreams. What happens to the church? Dead. 
push down. There's no, there's nothing. There's, there's, just, there's nothing being produced. Let me say that. So, um, so I go into the office and I've got two decisions. I've got a decision to either abort or put it up for adoption. I could have totally given it to someone else. So abort or adoption. The other reason why I went into the office was to figure out who the daddy was. Because if you guys know, part of my story was man-pleasing. And so I'm put in the office because now I've got this ministry and I don't know whose it is. Was it his? I don't know. I mean, I was giving myself away to the top leader. I, I mean, I wasn't trying to, but I had deep relationship. Like, I didn't know if it came. I Remember I said I had a partner who left. Was it the partners? Did we birth this and now they're gone? Did this not have anything to do with them? Are we the parent? Like, I didn't, all I knew was I was pregnant. Something's coming and I don't know if I want this thing and I don't know who the dad is. So I went into the office to basically figure it out, to, to figure out what it was, and I had to get the, the verdict or I had to get the papers for kingdom heirs, essentially. And I had to wrestle if I was going to abort or if I was going to give it up for adoption. And, and I say this part of the story because this obviously has to do with you. I thought it was super powerful. Diana came up to me, excuse me. Diana came up to me and she goes, you didn't abort me and now I'm here. And so it was this powerful revelation of me now seeing the fruit. At that time, it was so real on earth. But now all of a sudden, I got to birth a baby. And I'm in the middle of raising this baby. And you're just, you still don't necessarily know what this is going to look like. Is this going to bring blessing or shame? Or how do I tell my kids who their dad is? How do I tell them where they came from? How do I tell them this part of the story? Like, at one point, I didn't know where you guys came from. I didn't. Like, that's a, that's a crazy thing to have to go through. So anyways, end of the day, go into the um, office, and he basically reveals, long, very long story short, two things. Number one, he didn't tell me anything about making the decision to abort or to give it up for adoption. He first revealed the uh, paternity test. <laughs> and it was really, really powerful because he gave it down line by line. I mean, I saw paper for paper. I had to shift. I had to, he had me going through each paper, and he would like, start a sentence and it would say dot 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 and then I have to turn the paper and it would be another couple hours before I was able to read it. Basically at the end of it uh, he basically said it was immaculate conception. That even through my sin of giving myself away and not knowing where this came from he ultimately was redeeming that at the same time you did have an intimate relationship with Yahweh and I'm the one that impregnated you. So it by the spirit of adoption now you'll understand. He just basically revealed to me, this is mine. Like the father is me. And so therefore, by the spirit of adoption, I'm handing you mine to be able to raise and take care of it and put him on the adoption papers. Meaning even in that moment, it wasn't ours. Does that make sense? Yeah. Then after that, I was like, well, I'm not boarding it. <laughs> if a different test result came out, you were about this close to just. <laughs> um, but I still had to wrestle through the adoption thing. But he made it clear when he said, by the spirit of adoption, I'm handing you. It it's only, only you are qualified to raise something that I've birthed in this way. Um, so I say that because I think all of us have that story in them. I, th I think all of us have that story in us 
when you don't quite know where did this dream come from? Did it come from a friend? Did it come from a child? Did it come from processing? Did it come from the world? Did it come from my education? Did it come from, is this in my DNA? Did it come, where did it come from? This is what I'm getting at. Remember when I said go through it? It would have been easy to say this is not mine. I don't want it, let's get rid of it. And it would have been easy to blame, well, my partner left me. So, I mean, I don't wanna do this by myself. So I'm done. But I chose to face it for myself. I didn't go to try to figure out how to deal with someone else. I went in to deal with me. What part did I play in this? What is my role and why does the, how do I break shame off with what's happened? And he, that's when the revelation came, when he called me a whore. We just have that relationship. So I'm not saying that he would talk that way with you, but he was showing me something really powerful. Now, fast forward with what he's showing us now. I am honored that he would show me my infidelity because only in my infidelity can I understand redemption. Now I understand what happened at the cross and greater now that we're learning about this, do I understand what he was setting us all up for in that story? Because it's basically replaying itself when it comes time to the Torah, what the church is gonna say, what the world is gonna say. And the way that we walk can bring shame because it's naturally gonna disappoint Christianity. So then you have to wrestle, how did we get here? How do we, and it's the same story all over again, but the only way to be able to go through it is to not just blame Christianity, but to let me be the one to go through the whole story so that I know what I am and what I own. Does that make more sense from before when I was saying, allow the accusation to be guilty? It would have been easy for me to be like, you know, and I still would have been raising you guys like, well, I didn't want this resentment or frustration. Somebody tells you to walk the narrow road, it's gonna be like, I don't, again? Like it would have been an irritation versus a setup to being able to recognize how he was gonna ask us to walk over and over and over and over again. And the only way we have the strength to be able to do that is by going through and saying, okay, I am guilty. So now, how do I receive redemption through that guilty verdict versus allowing, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but so many times we go through stories and it's so easy to be like, I forgive, and it's all about the other party. But if we take the accusation on in the sense of allowing him to work it through us, then it becomes fully ours. How can you be a victor or have victory over something if you weren't under something at one point? It's easy to stand on the side and be like, well, they did this, they did this, so then you're just always in victory, but is that real? Yeah. Versus allowing yourself to go under the blood to come out actually victorious. Yeah. So I wanted to add that part of our story because I think it sets us up for what we're even going through now and have been going through since day one, but it's just becoming more apparent that we're all in the office. <clears throat> We're all in the office and we're all having to own and wrestle through what is it that he's showing us because what you carry is going to disappoint the world. Ultimately, you can relate that to Christianity in general because he is saying, you have divorced me. You have been 
the you have exercised infidelity against me and I can't tolerate it, so now we're divorced. So is the church, is, is Christianity in general going to acknowledge that or say, no, my father no. wouldn't say that? Right? It would be this natural, and that's what I'm getting at. I, we started this whole thing with me acknowledging my infidelity. That's a powerful thing because all of us are going to have to acknowledge because if we don't acknowledge the divorce, then we really don't understand what he died for. And we don't understand the kinsman redeemer. We don't understand the blood covenant. We don't understand. I mean, we, and I said this a couple weeks ago, if he died to forgive our sins, then how was he able to forgive before he died? My point in saying that is not that he didn't forgive us for our sins when he died, but there's more to his death than we've ever been told. And we don't understand the fullness of why he even died. And it's interesting, even when you read John, there's things that say, by the law, because Torah said, you have to die. Why does it say you have to die? Because he called himself son of God. We need to understand these things. Then we'll know what it was that he did to fully redeem us. That's what a transformational life looks like, not just by his, by his, by his blood or by his stripes, but really understanding and knowing what it was that he redeemed me from will allow me to walk. I think I do want to say this one thing. Okay, so we're talking this morning. And I want to just kind of lay like a big picture out for us to understand some things. Because I know that there's still some wrestling about where are we going with all this law stuff. Um, I want us to just, I just want to paint a picture. When the law was given, okay, they were fresh out of slavery. So my question for us is why are we so free that now when the Torah gets brought up, you're thinking we're going back to bondage? The Torah itself was given to the Israelites to teach them how to walk free. We are so off track that if we bring up 600 and some laws, all of a sudden we're legalistic and going back to bondage. When what if I told you you are just so entrapped and enslaved for over 400 years that you've been passed down a good meal and you're building bricks that when I bring up the Torah that is meant for you to walk a set apart people and how to navigate a free life, why would that be bondage? I feel like Right? I mean, the, okay, the, we, we've, oh, I've lost my mic. I'm not even crazy yet, Gabe. I'm not even crazy yet. So I'm trying to decide if I want to jump into this or not. But, I mean, we've said it before. But you guys know that we celebrate Shavuot. And Shavuot is because we're celebrating the anniversary of Mount Sinai which is when he gave us the law. We've said this before, but I want us to understand this in this context. They were marriage vows. Okay? These promises were marriage vows. 
So then my second question for us is why is it that Christianity would think that marriage is bondage? Because that should be freedom. So let me explain some things. The world is gonna tell you, get your bachelor's night. It's your last night to be free because the ball and chain's coming and you only get one. Okay, the world says this is what's free. I can be with anyone and whoever I want, but once marriage comes, it's covenant. Okay, either way, you're in bondage. But what are you in bondage to? That's why Paul says, let me be a bondservant. Because I want to be in, okay, let me say it this way. Most, the world would say, if I'm with him, I'm in bondage because I only have one. But before, when I was single and I could be with whoever I wanted and didn't have rules and all, all the regulations because I was free, that would be freedom. I'm here to say that that is bondage, according to the world, and not free. And this is free because I'm in bondage to something. Bondage is not necessarily bad. It's what you're bonded to. Yeah. So why is it that, it, you gotta think about these things. Why is it that Christianity is so against marriage vows? Weird, I wonder why we're seeing so much divorce. What is it that's free and what is it that's slavery? What is that? And why is it that we're seeing it completely the opposite when you look at the context of his instructions? It was to teach his people how to walk free. Okay, here's another slap in the face. It took 40 years for the generation that was bound to slavery to die off before they got what freedom was supposed to look like because they could not operate in the promised land without being free. So it's gonna take some time to understand his instructions, but don't let us be the generation that has to die off because we so want a good meal in Pharaoh. Like just kind of big picture as we move forward and the greatest lie ever told, you've got to think about these things because then you have to wonder, what are you wrestling down to the ground if you're a Christian saying all of them or just 10? How about 15? How about just two? Right? I know our wedding vows are awesome, but just, just two? Yeah, let's narrow it down. Let me wrestle this to the ground so that I don't have to be a bondservant. Does that even make sense? Blood or no blood? Okay. I'm not saying it's not about Yeshua, but I'm just saying blood or no blood. Okay. I'm going to, let me uh, give this as an example. Jalen's an elder brother, right? I instill into Jalen to wait until he's married. Yes. He gets married and he has waited till he's married. So he has not had premarital sex and he waits until he's married. Okay. Awesome. Does that make any sense for Sean to live a life and be like, he fulfilled that. He fulfilled that rule mom and dad gave them. So therefore, because he did it, I don't have to. Regardless of whether Jalen died for him or not, why would he want to live a lifestyle that goes, you know what, I'm pretty sure Yeshua did it all. 
so that he doesn't have to walk in his ways, so he can be free from the bondage he was put in because I told him to wait till marriage. Sorry to the world that might seem crazy, but to God's kingdom, it's not. And he should be in bondage to that rule and that regulation. Right? The world is going to be like, you're nuts. Nobody does that anymore. That's crazy. I mean, you guys have heard. Oh, Jalen came up with a better one than you. What was the whole um, test driving the car? What if his friends, and it wasn't Cutter, <laughs> one of his friends told him, you can't wait till marriage because you need to test drive it. Yeah. And you know how he said his response was, you don't need to test drive a Porsche. You just get the keys because you know it works. When it's pure and right off the market, you know it works. If it's a used, junky old thing, yes, you might want to test drive that because it's been around the block once or twice. But Jalen came up with a better one. What did you, what did, he did. You, to, you told me what he said. Jalen, what did you say to your friend when they told you that you need a test drive? Test drive a girl. Before marriage, your friend said that you need a test drive. What was your response? I know, but what, what did you say that why you didn't have to? <laughs> it's going to come back to you. It was, it was a better comeback than even dad. I think it had something to do with, like, the engine. I feel like it had something to do with the engine. Anyways, it was really good. I was like, dang, that was awesome. But does that make sense? The world is going to tell him, you are in bondage to listen to your parents. You should not have to live a lifestyle like that. You're missing out on this, this, and this. And in reality, he is receiving instructions on how to be free. But the world is going to tell you that's not freedom. So the moment you start getting into like, well, I don't know about all this, just know that the context of this, and if you're having to wrestle the context, it might be because you've been in Egypt. Yeah. Right? Because they were the ones complaining, being like, give me my meal. <laughs> but the promised land, the ones that got into the promised land, understood because they were living that free life. So I'm here to tell you that even, and I've said this before, law is a bad word. It, the word is not law, it was instructions. But even so, that we have to understand that his instructions were to teach his people how to live free, not in bondage. And if we think that it's bondage, that there's something twisted going on that we are in bondage already to, that we'd rather be in bondage to. Because we don't want to be in bondage to him. Yeah. So Mount Sinai represented covenant. In Jewish tradition, when people would get married, they would give the husband and the wife a marriage contract and they would be inscribed in two stone tablets and they would give the wife one and the husband one. Called a ketuvah. So when, when you got married, you would get your vows written on two tablets. It's a misconception when we see the Ten Commandments, five on this side and five on this side. It was vows on this side and the exact same vows on this side, basically being able to say between husband and wife, this is what our promise is to each other. So if Yahweh was renewing his covenant with his people so they could walk into the promised land, right? And think about now, like she said, if there's such opposition to that it's because it could be because there's a spirit of infidelity and I don't say that 
loosely because that is, as we speak, that is the state of the, of the non-Judaistic church is, yes. is in divorce. Like that is the state right now. So the spirit of infidelity is why there's such opposition to the bondage of covenant. Which going back to daytime discipleship, and we go back to Amber and Jason and the breakdown of family, or what we've been getting at, we've been after the breakdown of family, we're getting to root, to root, to root, to root stuff. We're not just talking about fatherlessness, we're talking about infidelity. We're talking about that spirit of wanting to be bound to the world and not bound to him and the fight against being bound to him. That would then be, right? That's just the beginning, that's the relationship. What comes out of that is the multiplication which is then the fatherlessness. But prior to fatherlessness is what we're getting at or what I think we're getting at. <laughs> this, this goes, this is like, I feel like we're, we're speaking to such deep things that it may not, you could be looking at something on the surface and have no idea of like the level that's being spoken to. Like I, I fear not in a bad way, but I, I think about this all the time. I was thinking about tonight, and what, what we want to do with what we're speaking on tonight is equip and empower you. And it's to the level that, like, you, you, have, you have to consider, like, with the weight of your life, the things that are being spoken. So this is what this is one thing I wanted to say. And this is it's one way or the other. It's one way or the other. So when I say this, I want you to genuinely think which way is it for me? It's one or the other. And if you're like, well, I don't know, then I can tell you which one it is. Okay? <laughs> if you don't know, come ask me and I'll tell you which one. Okay? Your either your lifestyle is either driven by your faith, which means my faith, my relationship with him, my obedience to him dictates my lifestyle, my life. The, the, the way that my life has manifested has absolutely been dictated by my faith. Or your lifestyle dictates your faith. Yep. Your, if your lifestyle, and if you don't know, I'll tell you which one. You can probably guess which one. If you don't know, if you don't consider it and you, you consider it and you're not sure, if you live a complacent life and, and your lifestyle drives your faith, then you're going to be severely lacking in your faith to where when we, when we talk about these things, it's not going to be a big deal. You're not going to look at it in the proper way that if your faith dictates your lifestyle, then I need to figure this out because my life can't progress until I figure it out. Right? Like we're not just like, hey, we're going to come have a Bible study and we're going to just fill you with some knowledge on this and that and this and that and ABC. And we're going to talk about the Bible week after week after week. Like when Yahweh gave the commandments, it's because generation upon generation was off track and in slavery and he needed a generation to fix it. And teach it. And the generations that were so in bondage, 
they were conditioned to slavery. Like they couldn't even wrap their head. Like it's not like he just could just set them free. There's there's something called um, when people are in prison for a long time. It's called recidivism. You could open the gate, just go to a prison, open the gate to a guy that's been there ten years, and say you're good to go. He's not gonna want to leave. Or if he does leave, he'll find a way to get in trouble and go back. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it happens all the time. It's battled all the time. And so either your lifestyle is going to dictate your faith, and it's one or the other. You're, you don't have time for it. You compartmentalize. You'll figure it out later. Uh, I'll let my wife handle that. Whatever the situation is, that's going to dictate the level of your faith, which is going to be like this, like nothing. Or your faith and your obedience and your relationship with him is number one, and it's going to dictate my life. It's going to dictate my marriage. It's going to dictate my children, how they treat their spouse, how they treat their children. It's generational. If my lifestyle dictates my faith, then what am I I doing? Because then if my lifestyle dictates, then this isn't really that important. It's not that big of a deal. They're up there yelling about it and they're getting all crazy. And, you know, and like, right? Gen- like when I say we came to equip and empower, that means when we, when I say that, do not leave without asking, which one am I? Which one's driving which? Come on. And, and if you're like, you know what? My faith is not dictating my lifestyle. Then allow Yahweh to be harsh with you. Right? I, I can tell you from her, from the story that, that she just talked about that false protection and self-preservation will drive you to abort something that Yahweh's trying to birth in you. He could put a seed in your life to manifest into something, he could put something unseen in your life that he ordained to be seen. And because of self-preservation or false protection, you will absolutely abort the seed. Or give it up for adoption. Somebody else is going to raise it. Like, let that... Man, okay, so now we have some questions. Is my lifestyle primary or is my faith primary? Am I, am I tolerating any, any type of false protection in my life? Am I an instrument of false protection? Am I tolerating any kind of self-preservation? So when Yahweh says, you have been a whore, she could have told nine out of ten people that, and they would say, Yahweh wouldn't say that to you. He wouldn't. He's a, he's a good, good father, right? Or whatever. Right? And be an instrument of those things. So when we, and listen, every, every, when we come up here and speak to you, it's because I, I don't want to be an instrument of, of, of imparting self-preservation or promoting uh, false protection. I don't want to be a vessel of that. I don't want to be an instrument of that. And everything that's behind what we say is because faith is driving it and we know there's a a legacy impact of it. If it was the other way around, we wouldn't have spent, we wouldn't be here. 
Right? And let me just say this. When, I, when we're up here and, and faith is driving the lifestyle and the legacy and the impartation and all that, and I see somebody messing around on their phone. I'm off. And maybe people are on their phone and they're reading their Bible app or whatever. They got to take care of an emergency. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be all weird, but you get what I'm saying. Because we're coming in with the context of like faith is driving everything that's being spoken here because of the implications of it. And I've said these things before. Don't leave without this equipping, this empowering. Don't leave. And it's like, eh, I'll, I'll figure it out next week. Okay, well, I know which camp you're in then, right? And this is all important because of everything we're talking about, right? Matthew 5. We talked about Matthew 5 a couple weeks ago. And it's a, it's a critical thing that Yeshua, it was so critical that it was Yeshua himself saying what his purpose was to come. And there is so much debate over those words in those four verses about his purpose. That type of thing demands that you wrestle with it and figure it out and reconcile what is his purpose and do I understand it correctly? Right? It demands it. And if you don't feel it's a demand on your life, then, I, then, then your lifestyle is primary. Your circumstances are primary. Is this making sense? Like, in, in, man, when we talk about a father, right, and the father's love and his instructions, like, if I didn't care about somebody, I wouldn't waste my breath saying any of this. Right? But it's because we genuinely love everyone here with the father's heart. And, we, and, and sometimes you just got to hear, like, Man, I appreciate the times when I can get with a son or a daughter who I know operates in sonship and not orphanhood, and I can be, I can be that harsh. You're not being driven by your faith. Your circumstances are driving your faith, and therefore you're not wrestling, and you're not finding out what you need to find out, and it's cutting off your, your generational blessing. Son, right? Well, and catch what he said, generational blessing. So there were fathers that never saw the promised land because they were generationally minded. So going back to what I said about the story, if we're operating off of lifestyle driven, then you don't make those kind of decisions because you're looking at, uh, we've talked about this before, delayed not having delayed gratification. Instant gratification should mean if I am obedient, blessing right now. There are some things that he is going to have to be obedient for until he's 26 years old. Yeah. For him to understand the blessing after marriage yeah. he may not understand it at 22 or or you know like there are some things that are going to be generational and then and then speaking even farther than that that's even short-sighted to say he's only going to be blessed after he's married no there's going to be blessings when you start multiplying and you've got a 17 year old yeah and the stories you're gonna be able to implement and the strength that you're gonna be able to impart and how do you create, gen because right now we live in a lifestyle that every generation that goes by, it's just a little bit easier to fall trapped to the world, yep. right? When I was younger, there were certain things that I'm like, 
what? That's an issue in middle school or whatever. You know, you're just seeing it younger and younger, or you're seeing more and more corruption, and you're seeing a lot of families that celebrate the corruption. Whereas, you know, it's so like when I was in, when I was younger, there was corruption, but it was like you knew that you weren't supposed to be. Now it's like celebrated corruption, and they've got to live through that. Well, what's the next generation going to receive? So even not being short-sighted in the blessings that you'll receive to be able to walk a certain way, but the blessings because you're generationally. Is that mine? Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? So not being short-sighted, when you talk about generational blessing, there's that aspect of it too. So a lot of what we're dealing with and have been dealing with is concerning misconception and misunderstanding of the word. And a lot of that misconception and misunderstanding is because generationally things just keep perpetuating, right? The way to deal with that is you have to wrestle it for yourself. You have to get, you know, we've talked about conviction. We've gone through that process. You have to know what your convictions are, right? Yeshua said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does that mean? Right? What does that mean? I think people use that verse in a limited, a very limited understanding or, or a huge misunderstanding to say that, and they use that as an excuse to avoid the process. No, he said his yoke is easy, easy and light. The burden is light. But what does that mean though? Because Yeshua, when he was talking to the Pharisees and he was chastising them, he said that you will, they actually had groups of Pharisees. He called some of them shoulder Pharisees because they would put a yoke upon your shoulder and they wouldn't even lift a finger to help you push it. That's what he's talking about when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know why? Because he's in the yoke with you. You seen two, two oxen yoked together side by side? That's a picture of Yeshua walking with you and his yoke upon you. It's easy because he's doing it right next to you. Or he's already done it. Whereas a Pharisee will lay a yoke on you and make you do it yourself. Which also points to this bigger picture of the Torah and the law and Yeshua and what was his position. He's not, it makes sense that he would follow the Torah and then tell us he's come to establish it and that it's made of love and, and kindness and mercy because he's saying this yoke is easy and light because I'm walking it out with you. Right? And then you think of religion that tries to put a yoke on you and then won't lift a finger to help you push it. Huh? That's slavery. Mm -hmm. Amen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Amen. I'm trying to think of where to start with tonight because there's there's just so much. <laughs> Matthew four and five review. Oh yeah. Get back to the outline. <laughs> now we can start with the outline. <laughs> But that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I feel like it's like we're plowing at such a deep level yeah. that don't let the depth of it let you miss 
right? Because you're, you're coming in on a surface level way. So do we, I, I wanted to review Matthew 4 and 5 if we needed to. I don't know if we should see if anybody has questions or is there anything We can do to... that. I was just going to add to like Yvonne, like that's exactly what it is, is slavery. Because that's why I'll keep saying we'll even read New Testament. It's not like there isn't more instructions in there. If we're concerned about 600, wait till you get into Romans, right? I mean, there's yeah. more. He, he goes on to tell you how. Yeah. So there's one Torah law, and then Paul will tell you how to follow it. Yeah. Let, me, let me throw another little just kicker at you to just, just <laughs> something small to just sit on. For those that are trying to figure out that he died and got rid of all of them except 10. Okay. Then you have to reconcile when Yeshua said the two greatest commandments are that you shall love your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And the second is that you would love your neighbor as yourself. Is love your neighbor as yourself in the top 10 commandments? No. So isn't it interesting that we would then say, well, when he died, he was just getting rid of all of them, but we just have to follow 10. But Yeshua already proclaimed in his life that there are the two, there, there are two he didn't say the only two. That's why this whole, this whole Christ law thing doesn't make any sense because Christ didn't have a separate law. He was just saying the most two important laws and those two laws, one of them is not in the 10 commandments. So just some things to begin to wrestle because when you begin to read, we, we're not getting into it tonight. We're hoping that at the, after the new year, uh, remember the third greatest argument? Well, the first greatest argument was Matthew 5, which we've already dissected. Second greatest argument about the whole law thing is Acts 15. The third greatest argument is Paul, Pauline theology and not understanding who Paul was. But when Yeshua says that you're supposed to love your neighbor, Paul will tell you how to love your neighbor. So then it's this, it, so there's like these laws or instructions, and then you have counsel on how to follow those instructions. And if you're not understanding what, who's saying what and where and to what, then you're not understanding the, those marriage vows. It would be like having vows. Let me say it this way. The top 10 or the 10 commandments, the vows I did not write out every single vow on the tablet or on the little paper when we got married. But does it make sense that he would be like, it wasn't written. Right. That's good. There's only 10 and I'm not doing that 11th thing. Right? Because it, those, because you have to understand when you start to understand the Torah, he sent a resource out on Voxer and it was a interactive Torah it was interactive. So when you click on it, you can see that there's categories of instructions. And within those instructions, there's other instructions attached to that one instruction. So for right now as a family, we are trying to tackle the Sabbath laws, the feast laws, and the food laws. Because I believe most of the laws, other than the ones we're already operating in and obeying, are all encompassing within those categories. So it's like there's categories, there are... So let me just say this. If somebody says, do I have to follow all 613 laws? Well, if you're a woman, no. Because there are laws for men. And if you're not, if you don't have a penis, you can't get circumcised. 
So there are some laws that are just, like there are obvious things and we'll get there when we get there. There are laws pertaining to women and your cycles. So if you're a man, it is, but it's the same thing with vows. It would be saying like, well, if we have all these vows, well then do I have to follow? No, you follow your part of the vow. Like if there's a vow that's pertinent to what he provides as a husband, but it's, it's relationship and it's marriage and it, there's expansion. And even in the New Testament, it, that's why I say it's even harder. So it doesn't make any sense to say, well, we're going to get rid of all this and then try to find, I'm getting back to what you said. We're going to get rid of all the topics. We're going to get rid of all of Yahweh's vows. We're going to get rid of all the context. We're going to get rid of all of the foundation. We're going to get rid of our wedding night. Then I'm going to go to a pastor and he's going to give us some counsel and he's going to tell you to do this. And he's going to tell you to do this. He's going to tell you to do this, but I ain't touching that. You do it yourself. Oh, pornography. Yeah. I'm not going to give you the context. I'm not going to give you the history to sexual sin, but I'm going to tell you to just stop looking at it. And woman, it's none of your business. Now you deal with it. That's slavery, but that's also new Testament Christianity. I'm going to get rid of all of the foundation. I'm going to get rid of Yahweh altogether. But I'm going to tell you as a married couple, this is what you need to do. And here's your A, your B, your C. I don't know how many marriage counselings we went to, premarital counseling, counseling that told us what our roles were supposed to be. Where did they come from? Yeah. Him, a man. Because there was no Yahweh, no context, no history, no, no, this is what the tribes were doing. No reason for why the wedding night's even important. I, I was just told just don't, and then you're supposed to. Where's the transition? And what is this supposed to look like? And how do I do this? So I'm sent into a hotel room, and he's trying to get my wedding dress off. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, where was the marriage counselor? We talked about taking out the trash. How about how to take off my, my veil? What does it mean? What's the What's the... What's the purpose? What's the context? Why this? Why that? Right? You know, so to be able to, does that make sense? So it's like Christianity has ultimately produced slavery because it's like, here's a yoke. Here's my interpretation of what I think you should do on how to love your spouse or how to love your neighbor. Here's all these things you should do. Here's the yoke, but I'm not going to help you through it. But Yeshua is the ultimate priest who said, here are my, here's my father's instructions and I'm going to do it with you because I do it. It's, it's how many times have you gotten counsel that says, you need to do this, but I don't. I mean, I don't, I don't know. That's what it feels like anyways, the way that I was raised. You need, okay, even just personally, my parents, you need to wait till marriage. They didn't. You need to do this, but I don't. This would be better for you, but not, not really. There, where's the example? Yeah. So, but so then we put our life experiences on Yeshua and we think he's just the same. Do this, do this, do this, but I didn't have to. And I'm not going to do it with you. So we don't know who he is. And so we're operating from that lifestyle, not recognizing what the word is saying. Yeah. So I just wanted to like, yes. And that's why it's slavery. But it doesn't mean that I'm saying that what's in the New Testament isn't good. Paul talks about how to love your neighbor. 
But if you don't understand why he's saying it because you think he's against the original topic, you've got a bunch of laws and regulations you're already following, which I've already talked about before. Do this, do that, and you're just, you're tossed to the wind because there's no overarching concept. It's just you should, you should, you should. But you don't know why. So I don't know. Do we need to review Matthew so, 4 and 5? How do you guys feel with Matthew 4 and 5? The only thing that I felt when you were going over Matthew 5, which if we want to circle back to it, was I saw this question floating in the air as he was going through Matthew 5 and he was uh, dissecting the word about uh, abolished versus fulfilled and what that meant. I saw the question floating around, yeah, but when he was saying all of that, he hadn't died yet. So when he died is when he fulfilled it in the sense of abolishing it. So that was the only thing that I felt like we should tackle is it is finished. Because honestly, if I'm having a hard time now receiving the wording, the finished work of the cross. Like I kind of want to tackle that. So it's like when he was doing Matthew 5, you're like, well, yeah, he was young in his ministry. He hadn't, it hadn't happened yet. But his death and resurrection, now it's finished. And so there still could be that lingering misunderstanding. Well, I don't know. Do you want to re review anything, Matthew 5, before we get into Innis Finished? Well, let's, what, what was, what is it when he said it? <laughs> okay, because remember, everything that we're going over. I don't over, need to get into the finished word remember, then. We answer that. We're done. Remember why we're going over this stuff and the way that we're framing it is, is because we know what's going to come at you when you start walking your convictions out. Right? People are going to go to Matthew 5. It's been fulfilled, right? We, you already know they're going there. We're going to get into Acts 15 and what people are going to say here. And then the finished work of the cross and they're going to say, it, you know, the law was nailed on, with, with him on the cross. Right? So... So we need to know when he says it is finished, right? It really, everything Yeshua says, we should probably figure out that we're understanding it correctly, right? But what, what is it? it? Anytime Yeshua says it, I want to know what he's talking about. And isn't it interesting if you don't know what he's talking about, how convenient this can be? Well, I'm not finished. The law is definitely finished. Uh, give me some other, give me some other things. Yeah, up for interpretation. It's just, it's a complete, it's a convenient gospel. Whatever is finished is whatever you, the devil, it's finished. Blessings, well, no, that can't be finished. They're ongoing. They're generational. Then you start quoting Deuteronomy. I am the head and not the tail. Weird that you think you have access to Deuteronomy's blessing, but not Deuteronomy's instructions. I, uh. So when somebody, when you start testifying right because we're walking would we all agree we're walking this out what we're talking about okay some of us some of okay. you could you imagine you're like well you guys are <laughs> so when you're testifying or you're in a conversation and somebody says no it was finished what what i'm asking you guys right now what what is it
that's one of the, that's so one of the correct answers is there's 300 plus prophecies in the Tanakh and he fulfilled all of them so when he says it is finished he was the fulfillment of prophecy is one of the things he's referring to being finished he, he fully manifested all of those prophecies which is interesting if you undermine or you don't acknowledge the legitimacy of the Tanakh right and the Torah then you're doing away with this prophecy which also means that you can't acknowledge him yeah. Yeah. right you guys hear that if say you say if you say the law the Torah is finished that means the Torah and the prophets remember Matthew 5 he said I didn't come to abolish the Torah and the prophets if you say the law no longer applies that means prophecy no longer applies which means where, who is he who is he then so if you say the law was finished, that means the, the 300 plus prophecies were finished, which means that you don't really acknowledge yes. Yeshua yeah. for what you think you do. Right. Right. So the prophecies, what else? How many of us thought the law is what he's talking about? Come on, you guys. Like that's, the, that's probably the, the most general answer you're going to get. Right? And people say it. Look, Google the finished work of the cross and see what most people say it is. What else was finished? Gabe has his hands up. I've always thought of it. His earthly ministry. And then the other... Yvonne. <coughs> yeah, these are all awesome. The other big thing that, that is like a, a critical aspect of this that he was referring to is that sin and death was conquered. But of the things that he was referring to when he says it is finished, and it was very much so, that word was referring to his assignment, his purpose on this earth being finished, is defined by these things, and none of it is the law being finished. So going back to prophecy, Matthew says the, the Torah and prophecy. We have to understand that prophecy and Torah are the two testimonies, let's just put it simple, to at least Judaism. So we, so you acknowledge that he fulfilled every prophecy, but we also know that the prophecy of his life is also not finished right there's more but he fulfilled all of those things because that is a testimony to those who don't know him 
for example, resurrection. It's the only religion that has a resurrection. So it's a testimony to the world that he resurrected. So it's a fulfillment of all the prophecies. It doesn't mean that he, it's kind of like what you're saying, he, he didn't do away with the prophecy. He didn't say, I am my own thing. Get rid of all of the prophecies that people are looking for. I am here to prove that I fulfill the very thing they're prophesying. It, it wasn't a, it is finished like, I don't care about Ezekiel. I don't care about the prophets because I've done away with that and I'm doing a new thing. That's not what it is finished is, which is the exact same thing. Well, first of all, every answer is correct. It's interesting. None of them, the context of the whole chapter is not even, it's not even a debate. This is the thing. It wasn't something that he even had to teach on. There was no other way to live. Remember, it was freedom. <laughs> so it's not like he had to have a, he didn't have to have a debate about some of this stuff. So he wasn't saying that I came to do away with the prophecy, but I've, I have fulfilled all of those prophecies. When it comes time to the Torah, Torah is the only thing that is the expression of who he is in living form. So what was it that he handed off then? He didn't say I did away with it. He did say I accomplished it. He did say I did it, guys. Yeah. So what? I did it, Sean. Right. So, so you can do it too. He's going to be his greatest treat. If I can do it, you can do it. He's not going to be like, I did it. You don't have to. I did away with mom and dad's instructions. I fulfilled it. But he also is like, I am a walking prophecy. Everything that's been spoken on this earth, I am fulfilling it and can, and so you can you. And so that's why it's not the law is finished, is out of context to be able to move from Matthew 5 and then move into a place of being able to say, well, the finished work of the cross means that's all done away with. We're not under that. The, uh, um, something co contextual for us to understand, because this is so amazing. <laughs> I... This is why we have to study Torah. Because when we do know about the sacrifices... If, okay, let me say it this way. If the sacrifices are no longer relevant, now let me just make this clear. The sacrificial laws cannot be um, practiced. There's no temple. So there is an aspect that there are things that are finished, just like if you're a woman, you can't fulfill a man's law, and if you're a man, you can't fulfill a woman's law, just like because he was the final atonement and, and the temple was destroyed, 70 AD, we can't have sacrifices. Okay, so those are not relevant right now. The reason why I'm saying not relevant is because we do need to understand that when they come back, there is a purpose for them. So I'm just going to say that. But if we don't understand the Torah, we won't understand its purpose. We're going to say that's demonic, that's the Antichrist, when in reality the one saying it is probably the Antichrist. So we just need to be aware of the Torah. Here's why I say that. By Yeshua himself saying it is finished, he was following the Torah. 
So why would he say it is finished and be against it when he was actually fulfilling and walking out an instruction? The instruction in the Torah is after a sacrifice, the priest would, uh, would, do, the, would do the sacrifice, and then at some point when the sacrifice was over, the priest would come out to the people and would yell out, of course in Hebrew, not in English, which we're gonna get into, would yell out to the people, it is finished, to let the people know the sacrifice has happened. So Yeshua himself, by saying it is finished and then gives up his spirit, is basically him walking out the priesthood that he followed. And we'll come in like he's some Englishman saying something crazy out of nowhere, saying it is finished because it's his own thing. When he was following Torah by even saying that. <coughs> but if we don't know those things, we just think it's some random thing. It is finished and it becomes convenient versus what is finished. So when we say it is finished, what was finished? Not the law, not even prophecy, the sacrifice. A full sacrifice has been given because he, he himself said it is finished. <laughs> is that making sense? That's why the veil is torn and that's why we have access because it, it is finished in that we are able to be fully forgiven of our sins. So let me, let me say this about being forgiven of our sins. Oh my gosh, there's so much. If I am forgiven of my sins before I'm even born, does that mean that when I am born, it's a free-for-all? So, so here's the thing. We're not saying that he's teaching us Judaism that says you have to follow these laws and you need a sacrifice in order to be saved. Salvation, which is his name, Yeshua, says it is finished, meaning salvation is for you. You have access to it without the temple because you are now the walking temple, yeah. okay? So, we are marked by being free people, bound in covenant, because I'm saved, I follow the law. That's the difference between what we're doing and Judaism. I do not believe that if I follow the law to a T, or if I disobey the law, Again, I'm not even on the battlefield of heaven and hell. Let's just say relationship with Yahweh. If I break a law, I didn't lose relationship. And if I obey a law, I don't gain a greater relationship. Because of my elder brother who accomplished, I don't even like the word finished anymore because it's so misused, accomplished something, gave me access to want to be just like the culture I want to permeate. How am I going to be a vessel on earth, kingdom on heaven, uh, kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, seek first the kingdom of God? How can I do that if I don't even know his culture? So I'm not doing these things in order to obtain salvation. Yeah. I already have salvation, but because I have salvation, I am marked to do these things. Yeah. That's the difference. So it's not legalism, it's the same thing. I am not, I'm already married. Even if I screw up, sorry, 
right? We have vows. I, there's, there's a covenant here. I'm not trying to please him to get more married. <laughs> okay, I'm not more married tomorrow if I'm a good wife today. And if I'm a bad wife, which is what sucks, I'm not less married. But because I'm bound by covenant, I want to be more united. I want to be more one. I want more of his culture. I want more of his last name. I want more unity. So I'm marked by being a good wife. I'm marked by following my vows. If I don't follow my vows, then I'm marked by not being that great. And there's going to be consequences, but it doesn't mean I'm less married. That's what Yeshua finished. He said you have access to the covenant. There are going to be some laws that are going to be hard for some of us. Here's the thing, and this is gonna be your launching pad. I haven't even gotten into the words. This is your launching pad for Acts 15, so remind me what I'm talking about. <laughs> if, let me, let, me, let me say it this way. There are things that you don't have to do to receive salvation, which I've already said but there are things you're gonna want to do to be marked by salvation. So there are gonna be some laws that are gonna be difficult, and it does not mean, which is we're gonna get into it in Acts 15, what Paul was talking about when he said, you should do this and you don't have to do this. It was not an end all to the rest of your life, what you had to obey and what you didn't have to obey. It was the starting point to cause reconciliation between two groups that could not get along. But once, uh, can, should I just say the example? The example? I, I'm not ready to teach on this, so don't like ask me questions about it. <laughs> but here's an example. Circumcision. No questions. Okay, <laughs> so when we get into Acts 15 and Paul says the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, that is not a new law for you to be like, what he was saying is that Jews, by heritage, not just by relation, not just by um, faith, not just Judaism, but Jews, had to be circumcised to go into the temple. So what are we supposed to do with all these Gentiles who did not live a culture where they were all circumcised on day eight? They didn't have that. Well, the Jews were stiff-arming them, saying, you're not allowed in the temple. So Paul said, I need them to learn so let them come in uncircumcised. That does not mean that you're not that you should just remain uncircumcised. What it means is is that he's flipping it. In Judaism, you have to you have to do certain things in order to learn. With what Paul was saying was that I want you to learn so that you'll do those things. Judaism says you have to do A, B, and C in order to have access. Paul was saying, I want you to have access so that you'll do A, B, and C. So when he gets into Acts 15, we're going to begin to understand what was happening here. Be I, 
I don't, I, hopefully I'm not getting too far in this, but what I'm getting at is that we're not trying to say, you need to do this and you need to do this. Let me say, let me, let me act like Paul. <laughs> you can eat pork <laughs> to come to service for the purpose for you to understand that you're not supposed to eat pork. Whereas Judaism would say, you are not allowed to come in my home if you are not kosher. They will tell you, you can't even honor Pesach if you don't have a kosher kitchen. You, you cannot do this, this, and this unless this, this, and this. I'm saying by grace, let's start somewhere for the purpose that you're going to get somewhere. That's what Paul was saying. And that's the difference between a Hebraic lifestyle and Judaism. But it does not mean that we're just ending at, a, like an, at an end all this, this, and this. And so anyways, we're going to get into that with Acts 15. But before we get into Acts 15, I wanted to go through, it is finished wording. Should I do that? Or do you want to do Acts 15? Yeah. Tetelestai. How do you say that? Okay. Um, the wording that Yeshua used, it is finished. You, we can all agree he didn't say that in English. <laughs> right? Like he did not, just like Yahweh did not it's say. done, guys. Don't worry about it. Don't <laughs> just worry. Just like Yahweh did not say, let there be light. <laughs> in English, <clears throat> Yeshua did not say it is finished in English. So I just gave you some context to start digging. But there's another layer that you can dig on, and it's the actual words. And let us break down what it was that he said. So it is finished is the word. I'm not going to say it right. Te, um, let me see if I can just look at it. Tetelestai. I'm sure it was much more beautiful when he said it. Tetelestai. Now, he didn't even say that word. Okay, that's the Greek word. Because when the Bible was written, they were writing it in Greek. He said a word in Hebrew Aramaic. Aramaic. Am I saying that right? He said something on this is this is all I want to do is just get get you hungry. He said something on that cross. And it was in Hebrew and it was Aramaic. We got a translation from what he said through John's perspective that said something in Greek, which was tetelestai, and then we took it and then went to Latin, then it went to, I don't know, then it went to pig Latin, and then it went to, it went to, it went through eight languages before English said, you know what, I think he was saying it is finished. So I'm not saying that he didn't say it is finished. I'm just saying there's some layers here. So when you read the English and it's just, it is finished and we take it at face value and then slap the law is finished, we're missing so much of what he was doing and what he was saying. So the word tetelestai actually means, it does mean it is finished, but it actually means Meaning, in that time, if you were Greek and you had a debt, you would go, let's just say it's the bank, I don't know what it was, 
You would go to the bank, and if your debt was paid off, they would give you a piece of paper with a tamp that said tetelestai. That was a common word because it meant your, your, your debt is gone. Your debt is paid in full. It's over. Does that put some things into perspective when we use it for convenience on what's finished and what's not? The debt is paid in full. There's another aspect to then when you dig a little bit deeper and you look at the word that he, that he probably said. We don't know for sure because we have to translate Greek back into the Hebrew, and that's really hard. I don't know if you guys have been studying this, but you can't get, there is no Greek to Hebrew translation. You have to dig. I really wish somebody would come out with a Hebrew to Greek translation, but there's not. And so you can't just take the Greek and translate it into the Hebrew unless you get a Hebrew translation altogether and you can read Hebrew, then that's a different story. But in order to translate English into Greek, then Greek into Hebrew, it just takes some digging. Um, but the word, I can't, I can't write it down right now, but uh, the two words that are close to debt is paid in full or it is finished. There's two words. One of them is, um, has a shin, a lamed, and a semek. So I can't say the word, but basically that word is the root word for shalom. So another aspect in Hebrew is him being able to say shalom. In that full, like you guys, you guys have understood what shalom means. It doesn't, it doesn't just mean peace, but that fullness, that because the word in Hebrew, ultimately the root is whole. You have been made whole. There's nothing about you being made whole that says, now get rid of half of my father's instructions or get rid of half of what's going on in my story, right? It's, it's whole, okay? So there's that aspect. The other part of the word is the other word that could have been used is, um, and again, I, I don't have it written down, but uh, kala or kalal. Does anybody know? You know? Kal it's kalal or kala. Kala. So he, if he used the Hebrew word kala, the word very close to kala is, ka is kalal which is this word. So on the cross, he was crying out for you. Or on the cross, it is finished. You'll read it in the Passion Translation because they, they caught this. It is finished, my bride. Because what he was saying is your debt, now this is where we don't understand what's happening because we don't know the Torah and we don't understand what happens to a divorced woman and what needs to happen for her to get remarried, but we're going to get there. What happens when you're a divorced woman in the Torah? I mean, I'm not asking you really, but this is what we're getting at. If you are a divorced woman, there is something that needs to happen for you to be redeemed. And ultimately, he was fulfilling that part of the Torah for you to be redeemed. So when he said, your debt is paid in full, my bride, he was also speaking to the covenant that was coming. So here's another part of the context. Back then in America, we don't understand this. I wish we did. But back then, a husband or a groom had to pay a huge price for a bride. He had to go to the father 
of the bride and had to pay a huge endowment. And it is as expensive as it was, was the value that that groom placed on the bride. So ultimately, when he was yelling out these words, he was saying, I've paid for your price. I've paid in full the endowment. Am I saying the word endowment? I've, I'm paying the endowment to your father to, to purchase you into my life. And, and it's as expensive as my blood. And again, when we understand the Torah, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a, a cool, I mean, that's a cool concept anyways. My blood is pretty expensive, right? If I lay my life down and die for someone, that's already expensive. But when you understand what you did not have access to by being yeah. divorced, yeah. you'll understand what his blood really cost. And it wasn't just his life. I mean, it was his life, but I just mean, there was a huge price to pay for you to have access. Yeah. There was a huge price for you to pay for that veil to be lifted. At a wedding ceremony, for that veil to be lifted, there was a huge price for you to be uncovered. And he paid that price to your father to, to basically have you back. There is a lot more to it is finished. Amen? So I'm hoping that that brings some hunger or some wrestling to the question in Matthew 5. Well, maybe he didn't abolish it then, but maybe at his death he did. In hopes that that's add, this is in addition to what he was already saying in Matthew 5. The bride, yeah, the bride's price, yeah. Yep. You good if I erase this? Yeah. Oh, I thought that said monsters. Like what? All right. Do you guys hear me? Yes. Okay, so Acts 15. <laughs> I didn't even read. Well, you guys can read it. It's, um, uh, it is finished. That whole scripture is, is per John. So John 19... Verse 30. Can I point out one thing? I love the scriptures. If you go a couple verses, verse 28. After this, when Yeshua knew that all things were now completed... Interesting. After he knew all things were now completed to fulfill the scripture, the prophecy that he said, this is how good he is. He knew all things were completed. The scripture had been completed. And he says, I'm thirsty. Could we be that hungry that even if there's something that's accomplished in my life, we're not even hungry when things aren't accomplished. But when things are accomplished, that we would then say, I'm thirsty. Yeah. Boys. Something else to like. <laughs> okay, Acts 15. Can you guys see like the, 
when you think about 400 years of slavery and how that shapes a person's mind and their life and their legacy, can you see how the level of misunderstanding that's been passed down because there's a lack of thirst or a lack of hunger and how it just becomes part of what you say. Somebody will, you'll just spit out things because that's what you've been told and maybe that person didn't fully understand and that's what they were told and so it just becomes this generational thing that's just ingrained in us to the point to where we would look at the Jewish people or people that operate in Judaism because that's their belief system and we ascribe certain characteristics to those people that that leads us to say we're in and they're out basically replacement theology one of the things that's a huge misconception and I'm going to I'm going to read Galatians 2 here in a second one of the things that is a huge mischaracterization ascribed to some degree to Jewish people or Judaism is that the laws for them, the 613 laws and obedience to the laws is their salvation, not Yeshua, right? And I'm not saying that Yeshua is, but there's a common belief misconception that their salvation is the Torah, which in a way, the Torah is salvation because it's him. But without that acknowledgement, we think they obey the law and that's salvation to them. In Galatians 2, this is connected to Acts 15 and the dynamic that was going on. Galatians 2, verse 16, this is Peter talking. And he says, Yet we know that a person is set right not by deeds based on Torah, but rather through putting trust in Messiah Yeshua. So even when we have put our trust in Messiah Yeshua in order that we might be set right based on trust in Messiah and not by deeds based on Torah, because no human will be justified by deeds based on Torah. But if while seeking to be justified in Messiah, we ourselves were found to be sinners, is Messiah then an agent of sin? <clears throat> if you look at the verse before that, this is Peter saying, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? And he says, we are Jews by birth and not sinners from among the Gentiles. So the point is, you have Peter, a disciple, acknowledging that he's a Jew. And he's acknowledging that you're not justified by the deeds of the Torah. Basically, you're not justified by your works. Right? So I, I just wanted to put that out there because there's this common misconception, right? We go back to Old Covenant, New Covenant. Right? These things are so deeply ingrained that when you see a Bible, you just the first half is the Old Covenant and the second half is the New Covenant. And the old one's old, so that means it doesn't apply. And the new one's new, so that's the one we use. Yeah. Right? There's also common misconceptions that Jews get saved by the law. That's their belief. And we have Yeshua who did away with that, and so we're saved by him. Right? When you have an apostle of Yeshua himself saying, I'm a Jew by birth... And yet, I know that a person is not set right by the deeds based on Torah. 
but rather through putting trust in Messiah Yeshua. Right? So that's, I mean, that just dispels that common misconception right there. If we go to Acts 15, verse 1, this is describing the Jerusalem Council, and it's pretty short. How many of you guys are familiar with Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council and what that's about? And it's okay if you're not. Just raise your hand if you're like, I'm, I'm familiar with that. So, like less than five of us, right? And that's not a, that's not a knock. That just goes to show the people that are going to be anti-law are going, this is one of the things they're going to be familiar with that they're going to point out. So it just kind of demands that we we have to we have to be hungry. I'm not saying I don't I haven't read the whole word. I, I don't know everything, but I'm hungry to figure it out, and we have to be. Yeah. You think we can't get into this? Well, just do the like I was just saying like the, for the overview of it, because getting into even Galatians is kind of a <coughs> lot. Like to set them up so, next week, we'll get into the details of it. So like set okay. them up to the big picture of it. So, okay, back to equipping and empowering. When we talk about Acts 15, this is one of the parts of scripture that is heavily used to say that the law has been done away with. And the context of Acts 15 is you have a bunch of pharisaical leaders, elders, apostles getting together, convening for the purpose of dealing with an issue that has to do with Jews and Gentiles and how do they come together and what applies to the Jews and what applies to the Gentiles. And people will use Acts 15 out of misunderstanding to say that it's a matter of Torah being irrelevant to Gentiles, but still applicable to Jews. Okay, so when, when you're engaged in a conversation or you're wrestling this yourself and you're, you know, you've wrestled Matthew 5 and now you're moving on to Acts 15 and you read into the context and what it will seem like when you just read it on the surface is that they're saying these laws don't apply to the Gentiles in a way. It's, that's what jumps out at you, that there's certain things that don't apply to the Gentiles. So that must mean that the law is no longer valid. Okay, when, and, and let me just read the first part. Now, some men coming down from Judea were teaching the brothers. Remember what I was talking about, Matthew 5, in the, the Great Commission, that not only is he concerned about you doing the law, he's concerned about you teaching it. Right? And it's an issue if you don't do it and you teach others not to do it. So you have an issue of men coming down that were teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So you had Jewish teachers talking about the custom of Moses, which means the oral traditions, okay? Not the law of Moses, but the customs of Moses. So they were referring to traditions of men saying that in order to be saved, in order to be part of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, you have to be circumcised, which also meant... And this is what was really going on when you research the context of the day. And you can understand this. I can understand this. They wanted to put up barriers around the Torah from, 
idolatrous people who were finding out who Yeshua was and wanted to commune with them, and they put a fence up and a barrier around the Torah to safeguard it and said, you have to be, let me back up. You, in order to be saved, you have to be a Jew because Yahweh promised salvation to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, right? So in their minds, you have to be a Jew to be saved. In order to be a full Jew, to convert fully, you have to be circumcised. So they were equating ethnicity to salvation. This is what was being taught. So Paul and Barnabas come because they hear of what's being taught, that ethnicity is the basis for salvation, so it's a status thing, rather than faith in Yeshua being the basis for salvation, regardless of your ethnicity. So basically what happened, this, basically what happened is they come and they have, they convene a meeting where the elders and they all get together and they talk about it. And Judea was kind of the center, kind of the authoritative place when matters would come up like this and they couldn't decide what was what and which way to go. So they had a meeting about this concerning Jews and Gentiles and what applies to Gentiles. Most people will say because of the outcome and not looking into it, they'll misunderstand and say that Gentiles are no longer subject to the law because they were told they didn't need to get circumcised, right? Part of the result of this was Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, but really what Paul was saying and what he was confronting is you don't have to be, you don't have to convert to be a Jew to have salvation, right? It's neither Jew nor Gentile, right? It's all about one man. If you read uh, Numbers 15, 16, it says that there's one Torah for everyone. There's only one Torah. There's not Torah for the Jews and then another set of laws for the Gentiles. Right? This is what Paul was dealing with. When you go to... Um, let's go down to verse... Verse 10 says, Why then do you put God to the test by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? This is one of the disciples talking. But instead, we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Yeshua in the same way as they are. Isn't that interesting? They're putting Jews and Gentiles on the same playing field of salvation through faith, which just goes against that whole misconception. And they're talking, they're referring to a yoke that neither them or their fathers could bear. Now, is that talking about the Torah? Most people will say, well, they didn't have to do circumcision. That's what Paul said. That's what Apostle Paul said. The Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised. And then here you have a disciple saying that you're, by, by requiring them to do that, you're putting a yoke on them that we can't deal with and our fathers couldn't deal with. But they're talking about the customs of Moses. Does that make sense? It's like you have to understand what they're talking about. And you can see how easily this is misunderstood as, as a, a pillar of anti-law-ism. Yeah. Right. 
right? Like the customs of Moses were was bad? The oral tradition that was oh. added on top. There's nothing in the Torah. The Torah itself, there's nothing in there that imposes any conversion protocols on Gentiles. Nothing. But the oral traditions in the Pharisees were putting up protocols as a fence to protect the Torah from Gentiles who were characterized by idolatry. They were in the pagan temples. They were fornicating. They were doing weird things with animals. And the Jews of that time were saying, we can't trust you unless you fully commit to circumcision. And then we can, fully, we can know at least you're fully converted and committed. Right? What, what are the laws called here? Nomadic? These are these four things that come out of this Jerusalem council are commonly referred to as the Noahide laws. They call them Noahide laws, like which that. is another, it's, it's kind of misleading. Yeah. yeah. But this is kind of the overall summary, but you can, you, knowing this, you can see how somebody can look at this and use it as part of their argument that no, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, which is a law. So Paul's saying you don't have to follow that law. And then you have another disciple talking about a yoke being put on you that nobody can carry. Right? And Yeshua said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? So obviously, the law is a yoke that's unbearable. But that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about the oral traditions and the customs of Moses. Does that make sense? So basically, we're going to be, just to kind of give an overview, so next week we're going to be getting into Acts 15 more, and then we have Hanukkah, and then the new, uh, the new Gregorian year starts, and then I think we're going to be celebrating Kingdom Heir's birthday, because we're going to be turning seven. So we have a complete wineskin, so get excited about that, and then after that will be our next teaching. So our hope was, was we've tackled Matthew 5, now we want to tackle Acts 15, and then we're going to be tackling uh, Pauline theology. However, I'm not quite sure if we're going to get into Pauline theology. I think we need some more foundational things, uh, being from Abraham first, before we get into Pauline theology. But, we'll, but anyway, so the overview for Acts 15 is that this is one of the biggest arguments besides it is finished and that he took care of it, is they use a council meeting on conversion to establish what you should be doing today. So basically the overview that I want to present is that are we still at a place of meeting for conversion? Or should we be at that meeting still and no? So it was not a set of rules that said this is the new way to do things for the end of time. It was dealing with conversion. So what it was dealing with was operating under the assumption or impression that we're trying to create one new man. We've gotten so far off track, we don't even want one new man. We don't need to deal with conversion. So, we, then, so then we use that meeting to our benefit to keep the fence up. When the purpose was a meeting to be able to allow the fence to come down long enough to get a people to learn both sides, both Jew and Gentile. We don't even have to have meetings like that because we're, 
We're not in a situation where we're trying to uh, meet with a group of Jews and the Jews aren't telling you that you need to be circumcised and you're like, wait, what? I've never been. That would be like meeting with a group of people, which has happened to us, and we order pizza for everyone. Like, true story. We are with a bunch of messianic, I mean, I'm not calling them Jews, I'm just saying. We were with a group that understands this and we order pizza for everybody and pepperoni is on all of it. Because we don't know. If they were Jews, they would have said, this is not kosher, I want nothing to do with you. So then an oversight person would have to come in and say, let me help you two groups figure this out. You can't stiff arm them. So it would be like Paul being like, it's fine with pork for now. But once the conversion happens, they're gonna have to figure out their stiff arming and you're gonna have to figure out how to follow the Torah. It wasn't a set of new, one new man now means just don't uh, slaughter animals and you don't have to be circumcised and we'll be fine. It wasn't, so basically the overview of Acts 15 is just bringing some context to why they were having a meeting in the first place. Ultimately, what they were doing was if you want to say that Yeshua is your salvation, can you at least not have an idol? in your backyard? Can you at least not sacrifice an animal and slaughter it? And it's, can you at least not have some of that gross worship going on to come into the temple? Can we at least start there? Here's the Torah, let me give you the top ones, aside from the ones that Yeshua said, love your neighbor, but this was like lifestyle issues. Can you not kill an animal before you come into the temple, please? You're gonna be disrespecting them if you have pagan worship going on in, their, in, the, in this temple. At the same time, Jews, can you get over yourself for a second? Let them learn about circumcision before you tell them that they have to be doing things in order to come in. So it was kind of this like mediation. Can you just not have pagan worship? Can you just let the circumcision thing go? It would be like me coming in and being like, okay guys, can we let the pork thing go? Okay, but can we at least agree that we can't say that, that if you have a tallit, you're demonic? I feel like it would be like me telling a group of Christians, like, can we not say that if you do Hanukkah, all of a sudden you've gone wacko and you're not a Christian or you're not, you don't believe in Yeshua? Yeah, you're not saved. You're, you're, you know, denouncing his name. And then you Hebrew lifestyle people, can you like cut us a break? I didn't know about the pepperoni. Right? I mean, that's what Paul was doing. That's what Acts 15 is about. So that's kind of the overview. Next week, we'll get into the details of what those laws are, what they meant and why. And then... Um, and then we'll be done with Acts 15. Nice. Yes, let me say one more thing that Paul, Paul kind of concluded this whole thing with is he basically, he expressed his desire that all of these Gentile believers would, ascent, would eventually go to synagogue to learn about the laws of Moshe. The purpose was to get them in the synagogue. But you couldn't go into the synagogue according to that right. time. You couldn't come to a feast if you weren't circumcised. But because we operate differently, he's saying, let them learn about the feast. And then they'll get it versus the other way around. No, I need you to follow these things in order to understand the feast. So let me, this is an article from a guy named Tim Haig. I just want to read this uh, paragraph stuck out to me as far as this sums up what was happening and what Paul was doing. <coughs> it says, Paul was unwilling to require the Gentiles to submit to the many man-made laws of the rabbis in order to be received into the community of believers. Does that sound familiar? 
like having to be subjected to many like laws and regulations to be accepted into a community. He was unwilling to require that. And his decision to move in this direction was considered by some to be worthy of death. The yoke, in quotes, of tradition had been cast across the neck of Israel for so long that it was impossible for many ever to envision a genuine faith in God without it. Like, that's crazy. They were so entrenched in in man's tradition, they couldn't envision a relationship with God without it. And, And Paul was not willing to send new believers into that structure of bondage. Right? That's crazy. We'll dive more into Acts 15. And, um, man, I, I, I feel like I understand Paul when he's like, I beseech you, brethren. Like, <laughs> you guys need to be diving into this in Matthew 5 and Matthew 4 and, you know, all, all this stuff. Because, like, your life really depends on it and not just yours. Yeah, especially when you know what Paul was really standing for yeah. the entire time. 